If New York City's streets could talk, they probably would never shut up. They would go on and on about tales of the people who came before us. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. A new book explores the stories of many iconic New Yorkers dating back hundreds of years. It's called Footprints in New York, Tracing the Lives of Four Centuries of New Yorkers. The authors are James and Michelle Nevius, a husband and wife tour guide team here in the city. James, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Michelle, welcome. Thanks, George. Good to be here. James, I understand that you are a direct descendant of one of the settlers of Manhattan. That is correct. My great, 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 hang on, great, great grandfather (laughs) uh, came to New Amsterdam in 1652, we think. And he was the, he ended up being the secretary of the city of New Amsterdam, uh, which is a title that maybe sounds a little more important than the actual job was. But he's the guy who took the minutes at the city council meetings. How much research did that take to trace that family history? Well, you know, a lot of it was done for me. In the 19th century, there was a boom in genealogy in America. Uh, And in part, I mean, it's actually kind of a, a sad story. It was in part a lot of people whose families had been here a long time wanting to prove that in the face of immigrants coming in. So a relative of mine put together a comprehensive genealogy uh, at the turn of the 20th century that traced every single person in America back to this immigrant, Johannes Nevius. That said, were you born in New York City? I was not. Uh, I very closely missed being born in New York City. I was actually born in Columbia, South Carolina. How long have you two been leading historical and architectural walking tours of New York City? Uh, We started that business in 2000. We had to revamp a little bit after 9-11, but we've been doing it uh, going very strong since 2002. To what do you attribute your great appreciation for New York City history to? Well, certainly for me, it's in part family history, Mm -hmm. but it's also just this is a wondrous town. And you can walk down any block of any street and you see 1820 and you see 1920. And sometimes, if you're lucky, you can see 1620 sort of buried in the in the layers. And we say in the introduction to this book that we wanted to write it so that we could create a time machine. And that's really, I think, what we love about New York is interested in something, you're going to find it here. What has leading walking tours of New York City taught you about how people absorb history? I think that there's a process that is a back and forth. You read something in a book, and then you see it in person, and that leads you to want to read more things in a book. And so I, 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 that's how I like to learn, and I love meeting other people who like to learn in that same way. We often call ourselves place-based historians, and I think that's really an important moment. If you've read about Alexander Hamilton and you've read about the American Revolution— it doesn't really, you don't have that aha moment until you're standing in his house and you're thinking, gosh, this is how somebody lived. And it would have taken him two hours to commute from here to Wall Street. And if you've just taken the subway up from Wall Street, it really puts it into perspective. Speaking of Alexander Hamilton, there's a chapter in your book about Alexander Hamilton. And I love this quote in the chapter. Becoming a New Yorker is really more like passing an audition. Your birthplace matters little next to what you do once you're here. And I guess that's the case with Alexander Hamilton. That is very much. He was born in the Caribbean. And he came here as a young man. We're not exactly sure how young. He seemed to fudge his birth date. Uh, and it's it's kind of interesting. He was either 15, 17, or 19 when he started college. Uh, and maybe he was trying to seem younger. 
but he also maybe was trying to make himself seem older. And that was kind of the beginning of the process of remaking himself. And that's what New York allows people to do. You can come here, whatever you are when you arrive, you can start your story over. Michelle, what interests you most about the story of Alexander Hamilton in New York City? I like thinking about Alexander Hamilton as not just a politician, but as a man involved with a personal life. We have read about his wife, his children. We've read about how he spent the last evening of his life looking at the stars with his children, and it really humanizes him. Uh, So one of the things I like about Footprints in New York is it's not just a history book. We are able to think about people as individuals, because so often when we're reading about history, it's very flat. And uh, it doesn't come alive for me unless I start thinking about, especially those sometimes forgotten women and children that are not the big players that, that come down to us in the history books. You quite literally trace these individual steps in the book. You go to the places where they were, where they lived, places, some that still exist. Right. Some some are, you know, just a hole in the ground. Some uh, require some imagination. But this was really about, okay, I'm Alexander Hamilton. What is still here today that if he were to miraculously uh, reappear that he would recognize? And, of course, as we get to more recent eras, uh, in general, there's more stuff. But that's not always true. You walk down McDougal Street today, uh, and Bob Dylan, you know, it was only 50 years ago that he was the center of that scene. And so much has changed that, you know, he obviously still with us could walk down McDougal Street at any moment and wonder, you know, what happened to all the places that we loved so well. The book begins with Peter Stuyvesant, and you start that chapter by taking us to the Quaker Meeting House in Flushing, Queens. Why is that location significant? Well, it's the oldest house of worship that's left in New York City, 1694. So not the, the Quakers were not the first here in New York, but it is the oldest actual place of worship. And it's so beautiful and it's so simply built. And you really get a sense when you're in it that you're in the exact same space that someone like John Bowne would have been in in the 1690s. That whole chapter of the book, which is about religious dissent, it, it, it hews to one of the goals in Footprints, which is to, you know, to tell the story of New York City, but to also tell the story that you don't always hear. And Peter Stuyvesant and the Dutch, people don't know a lot about it anymore, but they kind of know that the island of Manhattan was bought for $24 and that Stuyvesant had one leg, and that's that's about it. But they don't know so much about how much persecution uh, there was within the colony if you did not tow the religious line of the Dutch Reformed Church. He didn't so much like the Quakers. He did not like the Quakers, the Catholics, the Episcopalian, you know, anyone who was not a Calvinist. Uh, was not all right in his book, and he meted out the worst punishments on the Quakers. I mean, there's a man named Robert Hodgson, who we don't go into great detail, but when you read about the punishments that he faced, I mean, it's two or three steps short of crucifixion. I mean, the way he's being hanged in the dungeon, uh, barely able to breathe. Uh, These were terrible, terrible punishments. Visiting the Meeting House in Flushing, it's one of those places in New York where you can find a stillness that can be hard to find, even in churches. You go to Trinity Church or um, St. Patrick's Cathedral, and it's all about, you know, they're beautiful spaces, but they're filled with tourists. But we were the only ones exploring the Quaker Meeting House, and it provides 
an entry into a much quieter time period too. So we're not only experiencing what's significant about that place, but that's a way to be a vehicle back to the era before advertising and before cell phones. Right, and, and no tourists right. and, you know, just to be alone in a religious space. Considering Stuyvesant was not tolerant of all religions, are you surprised that we have places named after him in New York City? Surprised? No. I mean, history is written by the winners. There's a tendency to romanticize every aspect of the past. And New York is very justly proud of its Dutch roots. And so Stuyvesant is the most visible reminder of that. So even though he was a tyrant, uh, he's the person that people know. And so, of course, we have Stuyvesant Street and Stuyvesant High School and all of these other things. Um, I think that uh, that's the reason we lose history, is that people become icons instead of people. And so everything that is bad gets written out and everything that's good gets written in. And there you have it. Tyrants also are often successful in keeping uh, something together and whatever entity. And Stuyvesant followed some unsuccessful governors. And if he had not held things together, if he had not ruled with such a strong hand, maybe this would not have turned out to be such a successful colony. You also use this chapter to tell the stories of Anne Hutchinson and Deborah Moody. I'm familiar with the story of Anne Hutchinson, but I wasn't familiar with the story of Deborah Moody. So Deborah Moody was an Anabaptist. Uh, she did not believe in infant baptism. And so when uh, she arrived in this country, she was sort of hounded out of England by the Star Chamber. She brought her son. She lived in Massachusetts, and she was excommunicated when the Puritans in Massachusetts discovered that not only was her son Henry not baptized, but her infant daughter had died unbaptized and unsaved. And they just couldn't handle that idea. So she was sent to Rhode Island, which is where everybody was sent. You know, don't get out of Massachusetts, go to Rhode Island. Uh, and that was not a good fit for her. And she came down here, and Willem Kieft, who was the governor of New Netherland at that time, was perfectly happy to have her settle on the outskirts of the colony. And as long as she didn't bother him, he wouldn't bother her. It kind of comes back to bite the Dutch later. When the English show up in 1664 with warships and soldiers to take over the colony, where do they land the troops? They land them in Gravesend because they know that there's already this English toehold in the Dutch colony. So she got Kieft to agree to give them the right of freedom of conscience in their charter. So it's the first charter uh, by an English woman in the New World, and it is the first to guarantee that no one would meddle uh, with their religious freedoms. Now, Stuyvesant, Keith's successor, comes in, and he's not interested in, in following that. Uh, but it was a remarkable first step in what ultimately becomes constitutional guarantees of freedom of religion. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. Over the last four centuries, there have been countless figures who've made their mark on the Big Apple. New York City tour guides James and Michelle Nevius trace the lives of 20 of them in their new book, Footprints in New York. The Neviuses are with us this morning to talk about their book, Out Now from Lions Press. Most of us are familiar with the name Delancey because there's a street in Manhattan named Delancey. But there's a lot of history behind that name, a history that involves slavery 
which may come as a surprise to a lot of New Yorkers, right, Michelle? Right. We were very interested to learn about the day-to-day life of the members of this family and thinking about them having personal enslaved Africans is another way that um, we try to add a third dimension to their lives. They're not just you know, some long-ago person. They're someone that we think about what is that like to inhabit that body where there's another body right next to you who is supposed to do whatever you say and who in many cases it's a matter of life and death whether they do do what you say. Um, The Delanceys also seem to have made money from piracy. So again, piracy is something that comes up in the modern day, but we don't really have a sense of what it is like to make money by engaging in uh, violence on the sea. (laughs) So one of these founding families of New York City, very successful family, very politically connected, uh, their money would not exist if they had not engaged probably, or they would not have been as successful if they had not engaged in slavery. And James, who was at the head of the Delancey family? The immigrant is a man named Etienne Delancey, who as soon as he gets to America becomes Stephen Delancey. And he was a French immigrant. In 1685, the Huguenots were kicked out of France. And he goes to England and from England to New York. And again, it's a remaking. He changes his name. He changes his religion. And he gets in very quickly with the Van Cortland family. He marries uh, one of the Van Cortland daughters. So he's tying himself to one of the most successful old Dutch families. He becomes an extremely prosperous merchant. Uh, he has a fleet of ships. And as Michelle pointed out, these are sh- ships that are carrying rum, timber, you name it, but also slaves. His children, especially his son, James, become the sort of second generation. They're fully Anglicized. And James becomes the um, chief justice of the New York Supreme Court and is extremely influential in New York politics, but is stays very, very loyal to the crown. So one of the reasons that the Delancey family is not as well known anymore is that they were on the wrong side of history. So they became you know, intensely loyalist. Their side lost the revolution. And from that moment on, people didn't really talk about them. And that is true of many families of that era. This chapter also tells us about the African burial ground, right, in lower Manhattan? Yes, that's a very moving place to visit. There was a federal government office building that started excavation in 1990, and they started uncovering bodies. Now, there are many places in Manhattan where there are lost 18th and 19th century graveyards. Earlier buildings that were built in the 19th century didn't have to excavate down so far. But when you're building a skyscraper these days, if you're on a graveyard, you're going to encounter something. They didn't actually probably encounter thousands of bodies because that was very Um, swampy ground. The Africans were given a very poor piece of land that no one would want to develop, and they were forced to bury their dead there. So 439 graves were excavated, and the remains were studied by Howard University in Washington, D.C., and they have been reinterred. There are individual coffins that are placed into an underground chamber, So they skirt the law that says there are no more burials allowed on Manhattan Island, a law that's been in place since the 1830s, because they're not technically burials. Uh, They are they're entombed in this way. The uh, African burial ground is very tied 
to the Delanceys because James Delancey was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court during the 1741 supposed slave insurrection. And we don't even know to this day if there really was a slave insurrection, but the whites in the city thought that there was, and dozens of slaves were hanged for their crimes, including James Delancey's right-hand man, his house servant named Othello. Othello was not around in the city during a lot of what was happening. He was with Delancey on a, uh, they'd gone up to Rhode Island to settle a border dispute. Nevertheless, the finger was being pointed at Othello as a ringleader, and so Othello was hanged for his crimes. And we don't know if those people are buried in the African burial ground or not. Uh, Another sort of problem of history is that for so many people, there aren't records, and uh, archaeological evidence can only go so far. You write in the book that when you're a tour guide, people naturally ask you a lot of questions, one of them being, who is your favorite New Yorker? So who is your favorite New Yorker? Michelle? Uh, It's hard to pick a favorite. Uh, We certainly admire many uh, different individuals that made their mark, but sometimes it's the quiet individuals that don't make a mark during their lifetime but give us something to hold on to now that um, that hit a chord with me. One is Gertrude Treadwell, who we write about in Footprints in New York. Gertrude was born to a wealthy merchant family, and she was born in the 1840s. Her family purchased a house in the 1830s into which they moved some of their old furniture. Gertrude spent her entire life living in this house, passed away in the 1930s, and a cousin turned that house into the Merchant House Museum. We don't have a private diary from Gertrude Treadwell, so we don't know her very much from her personal inner thoughts, but we know her environment. We have an intact house with mainly 1830s furniture. It, again, is a way to travel in time to try to see what she was like. I understand that Gertrude may not have left that house, that this house is considered the most haunted house in all of New York City. Uh, That is certainly what some people think. Uh, There have been many reports from employees and visitors to the house that they they feel a, a presence there. So my favorite New Yorker, and the one we talk about when this question gets asked in the book, is probably DeWitt Clinton. Uh, Again, not remembered. The man should probably be the most famous mayor of New York City, uh, but nobody talks about him much anymore. If you know his name, it's because he was the governor who had the Erie Canal built, and the Erie Canal transformed New York's finances. But as mayor, he was the person who essentially kept us out of the War of 1812, which was also a huge economic boon, uh, and had the commission laid out to grid the city streets in Manhattan and then later extended into the Bronx. And those things, keeping us out of the War of 1812, creating the street plan, and then building the Erie Canal, mark him as an incredibly significant figure. But if you say DeWitt Clinton, some people are like, oh, there's a high school named that. But that's about it. Michelle, you talked about how Gertrude Treadwell lived in her home her entire life. Unlike Edgar Allan Poe, who moved all around New York City, moved some nine times, right? Including into a place uh, not that far from where we're sitting right now in the Bronx. Poe Cottage is very close to Fordham, and it's another place that you can go where you can experience that stillness and also such sadness. You are shown by a guide in that uh, building the bed where his wife died, and it's uh, such a 
a humbling experience, especially if you've been to Gertrude Treadwell's house, which was filled with all of the latest um, gadgets in the kitchen and, you know, an ice box even. Not an electric one, of course, but a box where you put your ice and you put your pies and your dairy. And uh, Edgar Allan Poe barely could pay his rent each month, even though we now think of him as one of the most successful writers of the 19th century. Yeah, I would actually highly recommend that. If someone uh, has a free Saturday to go to the Merchant House Museum, it's a quick walk then over to Washington Square, hop on the D train, come up to Fordham and see the Poe House that afternoon. And to do those side by side, they are contemporaries of each other, the buildings and the people. And it is a wonderful way to see two halves of the city. Speaking of two halves of the city, you talk about Jacob Rees. Yes, and how the other half lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's fascinating. Jacob Rees is the best-known chronicler of that age, but no one seems to have actually read him. That That's one of the things you find out. You mention people on tours, and they're like, oh, yeah, Jacob Rees. But his book can be a bit of a hard slog, and uh, in part because he's very, very racist. Yes. Uh, every group that he wants to help, he, of course, wants to help the Italians because they can't help themselves. And, you know, he, he casts a lot of aspersions uh, against the Jews because, of you know, they're so busy grubbing for money. And so it's really eye-opening to sit down and read his writing. This man, we talked about Peter Stuyvesant being held up as a hero. Reese is held up as this great hero. And he was indeed trying to help people. He had gone from homelessness to success. And so he knew very much what it was like to live on the streets of New York City. But that couldn't stop him from also sort of castigating the very people he was trying to aid. There's a nice uh, shift that happens between the Poe era and the Reese era, between very poor people struggling to make their rent in a room in a boarding house or perhaps a small cottage like Poe Cottage to the teeming masses of people on the Lower East Side. It's the era when tenements are being built. And actually, the first tenements did go up during Edgar Allan Poe's era. We just don't know of him living in that type of housing. They become much more common in the second half of the 19th century. And so the neighborhood that Reese was living in first as someone struggling to pay the rent or being a homeless person spending the night in a police station on the Lower East Side, you can walk in those streets. And that's a very easy way today to picture what they were like during Reese's time because the new groups of immigrants that are coming into the city are inhabiting those same houses, those same tenement apartments. You can get a sense of what tenement living was like at the Tenement Museum in Lower Manhattan. Correct. They do such a fantastic job of showing you various eras. They have taken an apartment that they know that this Irish family named Moore lived in uh, in the 1860s all the way through an apartment that was occupied in the 1930s when the tenement shut down. You write in the book that the Brooklyn Bridge isn't merely a bridge. It's a symbol of the city. And you take us all the way back to the opening of the span in 1883. What was that day like in New York City? The opening day procession had the governor of New York, who was at the time Grover Cleveland. Or was it Chester Arthur? I can never remember. (laughs) Chester Arthur and Grover Cleveland were both there. One was the governor of New York and one One was was the the president. Yes, one was the president. Uh, The mayor of New York, the mayor of Brooklyn, and because— The mayor of Brooklyn. Correct. Brooklyn as a separate city in those days. Right. It would have been an amazing day to have these people 
the president, the governor, the mayor, march across the bridge. There's Seth Lowe, mayor of Brooklyn, to greet them on the other side and usher them to the dais. But you can tell reading the press coverage that they're already realizing what's going to happen, that the future of an independent Brooklyn and an independent Manhattan is not long for this world. And, and in fact, the mayor of New York wonders how, in his speech, how long will it be until these two great cities merge? Well, the answer is 15 years, mm. and that's all it took. If the political centers of the city could be a bridge apart, the, the cities were going to merge. Well, let's run north now from the Brooklyn Bridge to Central Park, because your book takes us back to the birth of Central Park. What do you like to point out to folks when you're walking them through the park about the history of the park? A lot of times people think that the park was preserving what was on Manhattan Island before the park was there, but it's actually completely a built environment. It's the first public landscaped park in the United States. And Manhattan had been completely deforested during the American Revolution. So it's not as though they were putting a fence around existing trees. They were hiring uh, horticulturalists to travel around the world into Asia and South America and elsewhere to find trees and plants that would work in this environment. So Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox came up with a plan that allowed them to work with the existing rock outcroppings to a certain extent, but they used more gunpowder blasting away rock there than was used at the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm. They sculpted the land the way they wanted to to create a series of picturesque vistas so that every place you looked was different. So once we're guiding people in the park and we're pointing out these things, how if you go over a certain bridge, uh, the, the view changes with every step, and it's all supposed to be artfully arranged. Now, those... 300,000 trees, shrubs, and vines that were planted originally under Olmsted and Vox. Some of them are there, but an additional planting happened in the 1890s of another 180 or 190,000 plants. And then, uh, of course, we let things get much more overgrown now than they did back then. So you used to be able to see from the Poet's Walk end of um, the mall all the way to the top of Belvedere Castle. Oh, wow, really? And that was part of their goal. This was a picturesque view. Uh, it was supposed to be a giant castle way off in the distance. Uh, and it was a folly. It was not. It's a tiny. If you've been to Belvedere Castle, it's a tiny castle. But it was supposed to be an optical illusion so that if you stood at just the right place, there was this this giant castle. Earlier, James, you mentioned Bob Dylan. A couple of the other more modern names in the book are Martin Scorsese and Woody Allen. Why did you include them in this book? Well, we really wanted to bring the book, while still being a history book, sort of into the present, so almost into the present. And uh, we really felt if you were to pick two people and say, I want to have a New York City film festival, what directors would you pick? And Scorsese and Allen were the two that, that really pop up. And one of the things that is great about them is that they can be making movies at exactly the same time that show you different New Yorks. So one contrast we talk about in the book is The Taxi Driver, uh, the great Scorsese film with uh, Robert De Niro and Annie Hall, are being filmed and released within a year of each other. And if you watch those two movies back to back, as we did during the, the writing of this chapter, it's amazing how to think that this is all obviously stylized, obviously filmed, but this is all New York of the same time. And it's hard to imagine 
you know, Alvy Singer from Annie Hall, you know, getting in a taxi driven by <laughs> Robert De Niro's character from Taxi Driver. So much of this book was personal for us, George. We were writing a history book that is place-based history, time travel history. But as you, your listeners have probably figured out, it's very much biography. We're choosing a New Yorker or two per chapter to get into the essence of an era. And so each of the chapters kind of toggles back and forth between the third-person accounts of the people and the history and our first-person experiences going to places like the Poe Cottage or the Merchant House Museum or throwing in a little story about uh, almost being uh, in the background of a shot of a Woody Allen film. Right, or, or taking how many countless people have I taken to Jones Street in the village so that I could recreate the front cover of The Freewheel and Bob Dylan. And that's what's great about not just exploring the city as people who live here, but exploring it on tours with people, is that you get to explore their city, too. And so if somebody's most important thing that they want to do is not on the path of a tour, we take a left turn and we go and we explore that place. And so it has that's very eye-opening for us. Uh, often it's people exploring their own family's connections to New York. And so we get taken to places. This book explores the lives of 20 iconic New Yorkers. It's called Footprints in New York, Tracing the Lives of Four Centuries of New Yorkers. James and Michelle Nepius, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, George. Thanks very much. In addition to Footprints in New York, the Neviuses have another book. It's called Inside the Apple, A Streetwise History of New York City. You can learn more about their books and their walking tours at walknyc.com. And that's all the time we have for today. If you want more Cityscape, you can hear past episodes in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can keep up with the latest Cityscape news on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. My thanks to senior producer Veronica Volk and producer Taylor Nolk. I'm George Bolarki. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.